For the best night's sleep in the whole wide world, visit MyPillow.com. Use the code word REBEL for a discount on pillows, sheets, pet beds, and everything else at MyPillow.com. Woo! Rebels, it's that time! Can you feel it? Are you ready to be a great parent? Do you want to feel like you're back on your honeymoon? Well, we believe in you and God believes in you. Rebels, it's time to join the rebellion. It's time for Rebel Parenting. Good morning, Rebels, or good afternoon, or good evening, whenever you're listening to this. Hope you're having a great day. We've got a great, great program today with Dr. Ken Wilgus on this best of the best episode of Rebel Parenting. He's got a book called Feeding the Mouth That Bites You, which is not only a fantastic resource on raising your teen into adulthood, handing over autonomy, teaching them to be adults before they leave your home. It also has the number one resource on what to do if you find out your teen struggles with porn. We give this out. It's in the Rebel Resource Pack. It is a fantastic book and resource. You're going to love Dr. Ken. Here he is on today's edition of Rebel Parenting. Here we go. All right, third time's a charm, Rebels. My goodness. For those just joining us, we have done this two other times. I'm not sure if it's our end or your end, but either way, we want to push through this. We've got Dr. Ken Wilgus on the program today. He's got a book out called Biting the Mouth That Feeds You on Parenting Teens, and it is fantastic. Dr. Wilgus, thanks for being on the broadcast today. Thanks. It is Feeding the Mouth That Bites You. Feeding, feeding the Mouth, the that, mouth bites that Bites You. Feeding the Mouth That Bites You, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I say That's, Biting I the love, Mouth? I love you. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Ryan Everyone says biting the mouth that feeds you, so don't worry about it. Oh, my gracious. It's because I've someone, done this three times in a that, row. I'll get this for sure right. Told me it sounds it. like a cookbook, so yeah, yeah. That's no, I'm right. totally proud of that. That's right. Dr. Wilgus, we were saying earlier, this was recommended by our pastor's wife, and they have such a sweet family, and there is so much obvious intentionality in their parenting from the outside. I don't do that to embarrass them or to put them on a pedestal or say they're perfect, but you can tell what kind of parents they are by their kids. And she recommended this so highly and we've been diving into it. I really do appreciate this book. No, I'm so pleased to hear that. That's really makes me feel good. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Let's jump in. So you started this as a conference in the eighties and then decided to write right. a book afterwards because parents were missing some of the kind of foundational mm-hmm. things about parenting teens. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, because, you know, back in the day when people would ask, why don't you write a book? My answer was, well, you know, there are lots of good books on parenting adolescents. But I think over the years, you know, there is kind of a too much of a good thing. Mm-hmm. And now I had more concerns in the last five or six years that there are a lot of books that focus on a lot of things. And my concern was that what might be needed to kind of throw in the middle there is what is the main thing Mm -hmm. that you need, no matter what the issue is, whatever the learning style, Mm. the emotional disorder, the learning issue, whatever it is that you parent a teenager need to always keep in mind, what's the central thing. So feeding them out to bite you is really an attempt at providing kind of a main central road that no matter what is going on in your teenager's life, no matter what issues you're facing your family, always make sure that you keep this in mind and that you're on this path. Mm. Yeah. So let's dive into it. What is that? Well, the primary thing it really comes from understanding the origin of what we call modern adolescence. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned in the book that I'll never forget, I think it was the first day of class of an adolescent psychology class where the professor just offhand mentioned that, of course, what we understand as adolescents 
was created about 100 years ago. And that was stunning to me. And they said, and of course, the word teenager wasn't used until about 1941. Well, that's just weird and should stun everyone that hears that. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that means that everything that you naturally think of when someone says, you know how teenagers are, right. we all roll our eyes. They're yep. sneaky. They're irritable. Rebellious. They're, uh, disrespectful. Yep. Exactly. Just let it sink in for a minute that 150 years ago, no one would know what you're talking about. Wow. It didn't mean that there were not difficulties of young people that were even unique to young people, say 13 to 18. But what we consider, quote, normal problems are not normal at all. Mm. And is it stem from a problem we have culturally that only basically was created after the Industrial Revolution. And you can look up, there are other books that get more into this, but they don't tie it really to the pairing. So what that means, though, is that you have to always keep in mind what was known throughout history and throughout the world until about 100 years ago. And that fact is childhood comes to its natural end around the age of 13. Mm. That is that after 13, obviously in our culture, there's still much to be done. But that is now being done not on an old child, but on a very young adult. So, you know, when you're a six-year-old, you tell them to go clean her room, and, you know, she doesn't like it, but, you know, goes and whatever. Or maybe even she used to do it. Now, at 15, Dr. Wilkins, I've told her four times, and she doesn't even respond. Is it a hearing problem? Is it? No, no. That's no longer a child. Mm. And there's a character characteristic set of issues that young adults have in how they are being treated and sensitivities so that really even if you don't know that they are adults by 13 somewhere deep in your teenager's soul they kind of know it it's what we call the drive toward individuation Mm -hmm. and that simply means that there's a part somewhere deep in their soul around 13 that clicks and says hey in just a few years, I'm going to be just like you. Yep. My friends are beginning to look more like you, or I'm mm-hmm. beginning to look more like you. I'm beginning to think more like you. And they, a natural question arises, when will I get there, and how will I know that I am there? Mm-hmm. And we live in a very confused culture that really doesn't answer that very well at all. No, Like, how old do you need to be to drive a car? Well, in Texas, it's 16. How old do you need to be to vote? 18. How old do you need to be to buy alcohol? 21 what like that's a weird set of answers yeah yeah so to a very reasonable question we tend to not have a clear answer historically you think of a bar mitzvah for example which by the way is where you know jesus went to the temple at his 12th year probably because they're poor they go once a year and it was his bar mitzvah year Mm. there was a clarity about that yeah well jewish kids that i see now they've been through bar mitzvah but they're here in the west and texas here and it doesn't mean anything necessarily like it used to. It's just a bigger but birthday. That's an important distinction. Yeah. yeah. It, well, it kind of is mm-hmm. with a big ceremony, but it doesn't change their status and they can feel it. Exactly. So yes. that it's meaningful that, you know, there's an ancient rabbi that said, up until 13, I talk to my son about God. And after 13, I talk to God about my son. Mm-hmm. So the point being is that what often happens is there's this assumption that parents are just going to lose effectiveness more and more because they're teenagers. And my contention is, no, if you change your manner in which you intervene with them, you can make significant changes in your effectiveness. And that's really the whole goal, is to increase parents' effectiveness with their teenagers. 
Definitely. And do you think that's why around that teen age you see people like, oh, my kids are challenging me all the time. They're asking me these questions all the time. But I think right. somewhere deep right. in their soul, they want to know answers. And it's like, well, I don't know if I believe everything I've been told. And so I want to ask questions right. because I need to know for myself. Yeah. And I think parents get scared. It's like, well, are you not believing things we've taught you anymore? No, I just want to know them for myself. I need more Mm. questions answered. And older children, even before 13, good parenting says you have to do this, but let me tell you why. But by adolescence, a lot of times the questions aren't actually questions. They're really challenging. In other words, why can't I go to so-and-so's for the night? Well, everyone else is going. Why can't I? And so you'll answer it. But the truth is this teenager thinks you are ridiculous yes. and wrong. So you know, we talked about the communication chapter, but in that kind of example, it's not a matter of, you know, have we explained it? Yeah, we explained it several times. But you have to come to a point sometimes with teenagers saying, listen, I don't think you don't understand. I think you think I'm wrong. And we're just going to agree to disagree. So let me just be real clear. If I find that you went to that, there will be consequences because your nutty mom and I are so strong about this that we say no. But the critical factor is you have to also find times and it's critical to find a way to be able to say, look, on this thing, you need to make your own decision about that. That's not up to us anymore. And parents today don't have any sense of the value or even the purpose of something like that. That's right. That happened to me. It was much later in life, but I remember I used to ride a motorcycle and it was Thanksgiving one year in my family and they had essentially an intervention with me about riding a motorcycle Mm. and they dive Ah. into the first opening monologue about the dangers of riding a motorcycle and I started waving my hands and I go, listen, you have to understand, I know all these things. I know the chance if I ride a motorcycle as a daily driver on a daily basis for X period of time, the chance of me getting into an accident is 100%. I understand that. You guys have to understand, I'm well aware of all the dangers. I'm choosing to do this anyway. And there was a really long pause. It was kind of an awkward pause. I'm like, I'm not trying to be rude. You're wasting your time. I know these things. You're just telling me them again for another time. Do I know you're concerned? Yes. Do I know you wish I didn't ride a motorcycle? Of course. I'm going to do it anyway. That's right. And you found it moderately patronizing that the way they were talking to you sounded like, you think I don't even know this stuff? Right. Right. And so the manner in which it's done. But you take that same scenario in two different cases. Number one, if they had started by saying, look, like how old were you at that point? Like, 20 or whatever. I don't know how I was late twenties, early thirties, I think. Yeah. So if they had started by saying, listen, son, obviously your choice to ride a motorcycle is up to you. It's not our call. And we get that. That's something that is kind of people think is understood, but man, young adults always want to know where are you coming from? Do you think you're still kind of in a position Mm -hmm. of instructing? Mm -hmm. So if you start by saying, no, I get that. That is your choice. Yeah. But, can I just tell you why this scares us so much and ask you to consider it? You might have heard the whole thing differently. Right. Now you take that your same scenario and switch it around. Now you're 16 and you totally want a motorcycle and you talk to them and they're trying to say, we've, and this come up in my office, Dr. Lewis, we tried to explain to him the dangers and all that. And he just got mad and whatever. The answer is in that case, listen, you are free to come to your own conclusions and we get it that you think we're nuts. 
However, this motorcycle is something we would be purchasing for you. Or even if you purchased, we would have to be on insurance and all this. Therefore, we say no right now. Yep. With teenagers, the answer to almost everything is not yes or no. It's either yes or not yet. Mm, right. Uh, because, the, right. you know, and saying that, hey, uh, get it that we're not going to buy this for you or even let you buy one now. But we get it that in two years, if you think we're crazy and you have your money and whatever and can pay your insurance, that'll be up to you. That kind of communication is like gold. It's mm. like oxygen for that individuation need mm. that is constantly asking in the way that parents are talking is constantly asking, wait a minute, you think that I don't know what I'm doing. You think I'm not getting there. And that adds an unnecessary sort of panic to teenagers right. that they feel like even good advice. Like motorcycles are dangerous. That's pretty good advice. <laughs> but it happens all the time that the manner in which it's stated and the fact that it's not clear about what is our relationship in this thing, then, you know, these words kind of fall on deaf ears. Sure. So sure. that's what I get to what I call planned emancipation, which is really the main sort of intervention that I recommend in mm. terms of trying to clarify in each household this sort of golden road to autonomy. Definitely. I'll tell you where I really felt it, which was a very interesting interaction with my parents and I. I was born and raised in California. I went to school in Illinois. I mean, I was literally halfway across the country and I came home on vacation having been totally autonomous. I came and went as I pleased. I ate what I wanted to. I went to bed when I wanted to. I got up when I wanted to. All those things that you do for months and months on end. And because I was so far away, I didn't come home on the early breaks. I think the first time I came home was either Thanksgiving or Christmas. And it was very strange to be told when to come home. And it was like, what? Exactly. Are you kidding me? What do you mean come home? That happens virtually every Thanksgiving. I'll have two or three families call in crisis because this college kid of ours came home and we were doing fine. And he said, I'm going out. And we said, where are you going? And he said, out. And we said, when are you going to be back? He said, later. Yep. And we had this sort of, wait a minute. And they had never clarified what point are we done as parents. Yes. It's no longer for you to answer to us. And again, that feels wrong to many parents. Like, right, and yeah. what's really hard is that Christian parents who are very committed to their job as parents yes. can almost hear that kind of message as slouching or not really taking the hard path of doing what you're supposed to do as parents. But I would only argue that, A, that's a very new way of seeing it. Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, didn't say that they were in the same relationship with him after 13. There's an argument in the play Romeo and Juliet, right. where there's a guy wanting to marry, it's not Romeo, wants to marry Juliet, and the dad's argument is, well, she's still pretty young, you know, she's 13, and he says, well, you know, a lot of women have already had their first child by 13. Right. This is just a mm-hmm. brand new way of treating young adults, and we have gotten so used to it that we think they'll get all upset, but that's, quote, normal. There's nothing normal about that at all. I think what you're doing when you're doing the opposite of that is you're telling them, and it's hard. Listen, I want all parents to understand, I can't even imagine how hard this is. This child that you've raised since birth, I mean, I worry over my kids, and I think about them, and I care for them as every parent does, But what you're allowing them to do is move into adulthood with your blessing. Mm -hmm. When they come home on Mm -hmm. break and Mm -hmm. they go, I'm going out, and you go, great, we'll see you 
when we see you. That's really, really hard. It feels like you're yes. not doing your job as a parent when in reality you're saying, right. you're an adult now. I still might be paying for your college or you might be on my insurance plan or you know, and you can be on your parents' insurance I think till 26. So it's driving at 16, right. voting at 18, drinking at 21, insurance till 26. You know, these are all crazy things in a sense and you're saying, I'm going to trust you with more responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, because you are reaching this age. And the key is it increases, not decreases. It increases a parent's influence rather than the fearful, which, by the way, gets into your own faith issue. Parenting is a faith journey for parents that we claim that we understand <clears throat> that Jesus is our salvation and he is our assurance. And yet, you know, she came home with an F in algebra. Oh, no. There's no God. We're ruined. <laughs> mm. Wait a minute. He is caring for your young adults mm. even more than you are. Yeah. So that kind of panic, definitely teenagers get it that, oh, you don't really believe what you say you believe. Mm. So, for example, my kids, I mean, I'm not going to recommend stuff I didn't do. So on my kid's 13th birthday, you get whatever gifts, but also you get a you don't ever have to clean your room anymore when we tell you to. That's now up to you to keep your room yeah, and the key is not a privilege, it's a right. It's a freedom. Mm. Use your own judgment wow. in keeping your room as clean or dirty as you see fit. That's revolutionary. Now, with freedom <laughs> always, well, but, and it scares moms. Yes. I have literally had photographs brought to me. This room? You mean this? <laughs> I give them like, yeah, that room. And don't bring up asthma. That comes up. It's not, I've done it for 30 years. Never had a kid die from asthma. You know, dust could kill him. No, it's not. <laughs> but with freedom always comes responsibility. Mm. So that means that, hey, you keep your room as clean or dirty as you see fit. It's up to you. We told you cleanliness is not cleanliness, but maybe you think we're not. By the way, there's the washer and the dryer. You'll be doing your own laundry because, of course, you don't need your mommy and daddy to be taking care of your clothes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Also, you can keep food in your room as long as you can afford an exterminator. But since you can't, there'll be a fine for any cup, plate, anything we find in your room, because your room is attached to my house. So there are realistic boundaries, but mm-hmm. they're not us trying to make you do a thing. It's now expecting that your freedom should not intrude on our family. And virtually all teenagers get that. But it's a huge difference in the message you're trying to say that your freedom in limited areas, and that's what plan to make patient is about is giving over voluntarily freedom for teenagers to make their own decision, but in small portions appropriate to their age that, and with boundaries that keep that freedom from messing with us. Mm. Another one you always have to give at 13 is you now can listen to whatever music you think is best. That one is easy because unless you're Amish, your kid is listening to whatever he or she wants. It just simply, you can't monitor that. You cannot control that. Mm. It is more effective to simply acknowledge that, wrap it up as a freedom gift, and say, look, we expect that you need to make your own decisions between you and God about what music you think is right. However, with freedom always comes responsibility. If I catch your little sister listening to your playlist, you will lose your phone for a day. Mm. We're not going to listen to it in our car. Things like that that are kind of obvious boundaries but it's definitely not still trying to say, you know, Kendrick Lamar is all bad. And no, he's not. He's a Christian. And all this back and forth. And you're like, look, we may disagree, but that's up to you. And this is the important thing. When you're doing this, parents constantly report not decreased influence, but increased influence. Now I can say, do you mind if I look at your playlist? 
So seriously, how do you feel when you're listening to this? Like when we're on the way to church, does it feel weird to you to be listening to this? Or do you, right. And there can be a reduction of defensiveness and a way of learning to talk in these areas more and more adult to adult. Mm. But in order, not in, you know, it's not all at once, but it's in small things. So my kids got freedom of the room, freedom of music, and freedom to watch any PG-13 movie you want to, which back in the day when my kids were 13, that meant something because you you know, movies weren't all on the internet and all that stuff. Yeah. But every time, I mean, with that movie thing, every time a kid of mine turned 13, there was one new movie out that was rated PG-13 that should not have been rated PG-13. Oh, yeah. Right. And it was hard. But at least one case, it didn't always work this way, I know that my son actually asked my wife and I, would you all go see, I think it was an early Mission Impossible movie, and see if you think that would be good for me to watch. And he asked, and so we did. My point is that, to your uh, question about the fear, this is not about letting go of your influence as a parent. It is the opposite. It increases, when done right, it absolutely, what I always hear is it increases your influence over your teenager. Now, what about with that planned emancipation with school and homework and those things that I know so many moms and dads struggle with? Yes. Well, planned emancipation with school is a very important one. Almost always, it's some for many, many teenagers, especially with a learning issue, there's a point, usually in early to mid-adolescence, where the parents' attempt to micromanage school yes. is decreasing its effectiveness and the side effect of resentment and arguments mm-hmm. and all these power battles are making whatever main effect of my uh, micromanaging useless. Yes. Mm-hmm. When you find yourself in that spot, you step back and you know, you know what, we've been talking about this and we can tell you hate when I remind you about homework and stuff. I think that's because you're a young adult. Mm-hmm. So here's the deal. We're going to back up and give you the freedom to handle school however you see fit. It's now up to you. We won't tell you how, when, whatever. However, at, for example, early adolescence, at the three-week, it depends on what the grade period is. Three is If it's a six-week period, you'll usually get a progress note at three weeks. If it's a nine-week, you get it at four and a half weeks. At these points in the semester, we will check your grade average. And if you have any more than X number of Cs, something that is a minimum, by the way, not maximum, but minimum, that so your grades have to at least be this, mm. then as long as they're above that, we will continue to leave you alone. However, if they're not, then we will do, and I usually recommend a kind of a stair-step increasing limits. Like the first time that you're below the average, then there's no electronics during the week. Yeah. So from Sunday night to Ooh. Friday after school, none. Yeah. By the way, that even when since I've sent, put the book out, the whole chapter on electronics and so forth is already almost out of date because now taking the phone away it more in more and more families means we'll take it by seven, you know, like no, not zero phone, but less, whatever works sure. in your family, sure. yeah. but some limitation because your grades are low, but we still don't swoop back in to start doing the thing that wasn't working anyway, because mm. even if a teenager is failing, they never say, wow, you were right. I need help, Correct. and I'm glad for your – they sure. still feel that sense of kind of patronizing and humiliation of being treated like a kid. Yeah. So you, things – and then if your grades aren't up again the next time, then you don't have electronics at all, and then Latin – anyway, so that you're still accountable for your output, but we do, in answer to your question, is that we do let go of 
the micromanaging. That's one step to do it. Mm, and then the other step is that by senior year in virtually every situation, I think parents should announce that. I talked to parents about this yesterday. Announce that we are no longer involving ourselves in your grades at all. Pass, fail, it is up to you. It will now determine if we pay a nickel yeah. for college yeah. after your senior year. Yeah. But you need to be doing this yourself. So that's the kind of usual course with school. Well, it's so important because what you don't want, and here's the truth. My parents did some things amazingly well and some things they struggled on in this instance. You know, with like laundry and life skills, my mom was the queen. And I got to college again, you know, seven states away. I knew how to do laundry and I was stunned at how many guys literally didn't know how to do laundry. Mm -hmm. Like they were having to learn and they were ruining their clothes. You know, everything's gray, everything's yeah. shrunk. They yeah. don't know uh, lights from darks. I mean, all those things. I knew how to do all that kind of stuff. What I didn't know how to do right. was study without a parent looking over my shoulder. I didn't know how to do that. Yeah, and, I had never been forced. And Ryan, Go ahead. Yeah, Ryan, old people like us don't want to hear anything that your parents did anything other than amazing. We all <laughs> just assume your parents did perfect. Yeah. But it's very common. Again, that's why the goal of trying to clarify, you know, that letting go. I remember years ago, decades ago, there was a really good radio broadcast on Folks on the Family. This guy had this cool way of he would interview his daughters, the guys that wanted to take his daughter out. And it was a really cool guy, cool, you know, those kinds that you think, wow, they're awesome. Mm -hmm. And there was one point that James Dobson asked the now adult daughter, she said, what would you have done if your dad had talked to this kid and took you aside and said, I'm afraid I'm not going to let you take, go out with him. And there was this long pause and she turned and she said, dad, would you have ever done that? And that's a good example of where I realized they had never actually clarified. Is this little interview thing, something that he's asked his daughters to allow him to do Mm. and they uh, benefit from his feedback or was that in fact, a gatekeeper that said my girls still don't know whether they know who to go out with I have to check that Mm -hmm. it was really interesting that she didn't go oh no he would never have done that she wasn't sure because dad was obviously smart enough he never did that yeah you're not gonna say I can't let you go but that clarity is just not always as a parent that the uh, is obvious the first step in anything is the thing I'm about to say to this teenager is this advice or is this a have to Yep. And the same thing with school. You can gain a lot more ability to have feedback about, wow, so you failed another of those tests? Dude, what were you thinking? What do you think? You can get feedback yeah. that's more than, I don't know, I'm fine. You can right, actually right. have, I don't know, I don't get what's on these tests because they know that I'm not going to swoop in as a parent. I've already told you that. That's up to you. Sure. So I'm seriously just talking about advice. But what you have said, which I think is important for parents, is they are responsible for their output. So I can hear a parent out there being like, my kid is listening to this terrible music all day long and their friends are horrible and they're behaving, you know, in these crazy ways. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. The behavior is output. If they are talking back, if they are cursing, if they are being mean to a sibling, if they are getting bad grades, that is responsibility for output. And then if they are being irresponsible with output, then the limitations increase of, well, then we have to increase some limitations. And so 
parents still have all the power they think they do, but they're wielding it in a different way. And they're also measuring it in a different way because when you use responsible, mm. I want to be real clear that what is a little bit shaky for parents is I'm not, you know, there's some really good parenting on children. Like I happen to like the Parenting with Love and Logic series is a good example that talks about the more responsibility yep. your children of any age uh, display, the more autonomy or the more uh, privilege you'll allow. Yeah. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you get to a point where simply because of your age, you will now gain this freedom. Right. And a freedom isn't something that I take back. But with any freedom, then, yeah, you will be held accountable, accountable like any adult for your output. Mm. And so the manner in which it's done is critical. And if it's not done with a genuine spirit of peace and a spirit that says, look, we are looking forward to we are for your autonomy eventually. Mm-hmm. We want you to get there. You know, even I've had some parents that sort of do these steps, like I've got charts in there, you know, you kind of do the steps. But teenagers will come back and go, yeah, they didn't mean it at all. They didn't even like it. Sure. It was like that thing Dr. Wilgus told them to do. So you really need to prayerfully kind of be for this, that my teenager is wanting to know, am I ever going to basically, will I grow up here in this house or will I have to get away? Definitely. And yeah. too often, Definitely. you just feel like you have to get away. I had a friend in high school and his parents were trying to do this. And this is a, something parents can fall into on accident. They were trying to give more and more autonomy. We were seniors in high school, and they said, listen, you can come and go as you please. Do homework. Don't do homework. They're really trying to, you know, to give that away. Well, he stayed out, you know, four or five days in a row and did things the parents didn't like, and they yanked it right back in. They locked the doors exactly. one night, locked exactly. the kid out, and it was like, wait a minute, we had a deal. And essentially what Perfect. they were saying was, well, we had a deal as long as you followed the rules we thought you'd follow, but if you're not going to follow those rules, no deal. Yeah. And that really That's did exactly hurt their relationship. Right. And that ends up being kind of often the default understanding, even when a kid leaves for college. All right, you're going to go off to university, but if you mess up, we're going to bring you back home. It. Well, yep. that is the least effective, least adult way of handling. Much more effective is, look, here's what we can afford. We will pay for at this or that university, we will pay for any class that you pass. But if you fail a class, you have to pay us back for that class before you sign up for the next. Something right. that is yep. very adult yeah. and responsible, like what I call by that point, you're a benevolent bank. Yep. Yes. Like the last freedom on the uh, individuation or on the uh, planned emancipation uh, should be you no longer have to answer to us when you come in at night. Right. And right. Man, that's always scary. But I would give that the day after they graduate high school. Sure. If they, yeah. they're going to be going to college, especially away, but even if they don't go away, it still changes their mm-hmm. life completely. Yes. You want to have some months, some weeks of practice where they see that we get this. We're not going to help you if you, you know, are late to your job and obviously they have to have a job. No senior after high school is just going to sit around at home. Absolutely not. But you don't answer to us about this thing, mm-hmm. and parents will often struggle with that. I, Dr. Wilkes, I can't go to sleep until she's home. And your adult is going, um, just because you have a sleep disorder, why do I have to come in right. you know, at night exactly. when, when I'm off at school? So that same message, of we're, uh, the, the implied message of we'll give this whole adult thing a try, and we're going to reel it all back in if it falls apart, that is a common mistaken message that – 
really upsets young adults. Mm-hmm. I thought I was 17, and now yep. I'm back to 12 yep. yeah. just because I failed algebra. Right. right. Well, real quick, I just want to jump in. We speak all over the country, and we keep hearing from parents and adults that the struggle with pornography, and I know your book talked a, a lot about that, mm-hmm. and I just want to jump in and help other parents yeah, out before there. before we close, let's definitely talk about porn. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. love for you to okay, share the main porn, points on that. I mean, it's no longer a time to talk about, gee, what if my family has some encounter with porn? Exactly. It is really clearly a time, what will you do when your family mm-hmm. has an encounter mm-hmm. with porn? Correct. When I speak even about adults, I no longer talk about, you know, there may be a man in this room or a woman who has an issue with porn. It's now, I know there's, I don't know how many, but for those of us that have definitely struggled with porn, let's talk about it. It's just silly to pretend like it's an occasional issue. Of course. Yes. So it's much better to, with again, keeping with the whole planned emancipation thing. I think it's very rare that a Christian family has a teenager that actively sort of enjoys porn, can't imagine what's wrong with it, and they're secretly, they just want to do it. Virtually always, it's somewhat of a struggle, especially if it's a Christian teenager, there is a struggle internally with this activity. It's yeah. not even, regardless of whether you're filled in the spirit or not, it's kind of unnatural to be mentally carrying out this intimacy thing when you're completely alone and no one yeah. feels good about mm, it. Right. So yeah. what you need to start with is making sure the least effective is to really freak out and to make sure your teenager is reminded that this is our rule and you broke our rule. That's the least effective way of doing it. Thank you. What's much more effective is being careful, especially the first time, to not overshame your teenager. It's really important, especially for dads, and if it's a single mom, then this is where the church can help. But it's important, especially for young men, to know that, look, I get it. I know the attraction of this empty thing. It's a $10 billion a year industry that yeah. no one is using and they're being targeted that's right so no one is stunned that you're attracted to it for sure but at the same time i really want to try to help you with this and so that the first step there is a really important conversation Mm. that hopefully is an add-on conversation to the one you had when they entered adolescence that often i think is a good idea around 13 um I i think i think your dad ryan has a book about taking your kids on a weekend thing and yeah, talking with them, for adolescence. that kind of thing, which I think is a really good thing to do as a shrink. Of course, uh, you know, I just totally ate that up and, and maybe scared my son a little bit. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> masturbation. What? Yeah. But the point is that your first step is to not feed that shame, but to actually help them to understand that I want to join you in helping you with this temptation. Mm. The mechanics of that then would be that I'm a big fan of, internet monitoring, not filtering. Teenagers are kind of often offended uh, when I have to ask uh, my mom for the passcode to do my report on breast cancer. Right. It feels patronizing. So filtering is good for children who may accidentally get into something they don't know what they're doing. Monitoring says this computer will go wherever it wants to go, but my computer will receive an email summary of every place this computer went. Yes. And that should be done Openly, like I want to make sure you know that all of our computers are covered. I like for dads to say that to add that, hey, and this helps me too. I may or may not have a big problem with it, but 
you know, I don't want to be thinking about it either. Right. Correct. But it, we're monitoring because it's a real thing. And obviously, I think everyone knows this. It's not just a guy problem. Yes. But right. I don't want to overstate that it is still mostly a guy problem. But it's definitely something to think about for both uh, boys and girls, young adult men and women. For sure. So mm-hmm. you, monitoring is a good way to do that. You have second, third offense. Then, you know, I have no problem with, look, we're going to shut off the computer for a week your access to it because of this, but I wouldn't mount those consequences like, so that this is the second time. So it's a month without computer. Mm. First of all, you kind of can't do that. Sure. But secondly, again, I would think of it more as repeated episodes are more triggering, uh, more intense discussion, talking. I certainly am in favor of, you know, this is what youth ministers I think are for. These are professional, cool people that are supposed to help our teenagers maybe have maybe accountability groups with other teenagers, things that are just, that are more than simply parents trying to police pornography on every device. Right. And that's a hard task. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yes. Great. I have an additional you have to question. recognize their freedom. Sure. I have an additional sure. question on that. As you're going for, you know, autonomy with children, we don't do screens in bedrooms currently. Absolutely, yeah. Good. The for screens you. are only in the living room where mom and dad are, or you know, if they're in our bedroom with us, and we don't do you know laptops, iPads, you know, video games in bedrooms. We don't allow online chat with video games, things like that. As they're getting older and yeah. older, do you release the screens to a bedroom where they can be? I mean, obviously, if you have a monitoring software, you have monitoring going on, and they know that. But what ages do you think are appropriate for when they can have the screens by themselves in their rooms? See, that's a really good question because I don't remember the recommended age I said in the book. But I do know that, number one, with uh, any teenager, Christian parents are in a tough spot because Mm -hmm. for many, many households, there's far less monitoring of screens. And that's the right word that you're using. Not just the content, but literally screens. Like no matter what you're doing, how much time are you spending on this screen? Right. So yeah. it's pretty common that parents I work with have these, according to their teenagers, ridiculous limits on the screens and all this stuff mm-hmm. that, yeah, that is tough. But I always say, dude, part of the problem is that there's this research coming out and it's looking really bad for screens. So, right. but my friends, just like anything else, and to your question, yes, there should be a point at which you change that monitoring. And that would include even in bedrooms. What I probably changed though is that that would I would add that among the later things mm-hmm. rather than even mid adolescence. So I'm oh. fine if you wait until senior year before you let her do that. That's fine with me. But you definitely do it before they leave home. Sure. So okay. that you don't have I can't I've had several kids completely bomb out of freshman year because it was the first time that and it's always a guy that he had free access to video games and porn and so forth. And just literally after about October, in two or three cases, didn't leave his dorm room. Like pretty right. much ate yep. and stayed in there. And just looked. played Xbox So you, you definitely long. need to give them that freedom before they leave your house. But you want to do it late in adolescence, I'm totally fine with that. I get that because mm-hmm. it is hard for all of us to manage. Last thing I'll say, by the way, is that if parents want to add that limit more than they've been doing, it's always hard on the teenagers to say, look, we're going to change this to where now we're doing this. It's much easier if all of you do it. Like, it's not just bad for our teenagers to have screens in the room. It's bad for all of us to have screens in the room. Sure. So mm-hmm. let's all do this. Now it's a house rule. We all put that up. A yeah. family rule. Yeah. 
That's great. I love you talking about the shift of having our adolescents as young adults and just coming from them not being big children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that whole shift in parenting yeah, yeah. is just huge. We had Mary Heffernan on from Five Mary's Farms, and she had a great quote that we've been using, and it's, if your child is old enough to swipe a screen, then they're old enough to do laundry. And it was like, Mm -hmm. oh, wait. I mean, the laundry, the washing machine (laughs) is so easy. You turn a dial, it goes to this one, it works. It's so Using a cell phone is so much more difficult. It's like, oh, they can totally do this. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yes. And they'll be better for it. And I was interviewed by a therapist on the West Coast in California, actually in Silicon Valley, and she really liked the book. And she was told me that limits on screens, like uh, no screen parties, everyone comes over, they all put their screen, their phones in a basket, and all that. That's very common in California, where this stuff comes from. Yeah, yep. It felt like being in Texas, and I've heard similar from New York. I kind of think the hipper areas are way more aware of this mm-hmm. than in the middle of the country where I am. That it's like we didn't get the memo that, oh, yeah, people are not allowing this. Like the top school to get into in Silicon Valley has one computer in the whole school. It's in the admissions office. That's the one you try to get into. And you use paper and a pen. And this is hardly backward. I kind of think those of us that are thinking, well, you can't learn if you don't have a screen. Uh, Apparently, we're the backward ones. Okay. Right. That's good to know. Awesome. Dr. Wilgus, thank you so much for coming on. We really do appreciate it. We love giving parents, because this gives parents confidence. It's not fear-inducing. I hope so. It's confidence-giving, and you're really helping us with that. Uh, That's what I hope so. Thank you for saying that, Ryan. That's my goal. I appreciate it. God bless. Thank you so much for being on today. Y'all take care. You too. God bless. Thanks again for listening, Rebels. Thanks for sharing this with your friends and family. If you know someone of the teen, definitely pass this program on to them. Help them uh, with this podcast. It's a great one. Thanks to Dr. Ken for joining us, and thank you to the Voice of the Martyrs for sponsoring us all year long. Persecution.com is their website for the Voice of the Martyrs. God bless, Rebels. We'll see you soon. Rebel Parenting is produced by Rebel Media House and... When you need a little help with your marriage or parenting, and everyone does, you can find it at rebelparenting.org. Sign up for the Rebel Update by texting the word REBEL to 444-999. That's R-E-B-E-L, and the number is 444-999. We love it when you share Rebel Parenting with your friends and family, so thank you. God bless. Thanks for spending your time with us, and we'll see you next time for another episode of Rebel Parenting. Rebel Parenting.